Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jim Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the Korean War. The war that is quite often referred to as the Forgotten War. So how are we going to remember it? Well, I'm actually going to do it with a number of movies spreading over basically a 50-year period, which is ironic because the Korean War started in 1950, but anyway, I digress. So don't worry. We're going to start with pop culture, which is obviously going to be talking about the Korean War. And interestingly, the films are either Chinese or American rather than maybe Korean, although I will be mentioning one Korean movie about the Korean War. But that to one side, it's also going to take us into a slightly different, weirder world as well, including a movie that's got literally nothing to do with the Korean War. But bear with me, because... This is going to sort of bring in politics, military history, obviously, but also something that's very important in terms of sort of cultural history, particularly in the world of Hollywood. So lots to cover on this particular occasion. The year is 2021. Do you remember that? COVID was still everywhere. There were various different lockdowns, etc. And so the movie world was very suppressed in the year 2021. Films were coming out, but many people weren't going anywhere near the cinema because of the fear of COVID, and quite rightly too, I get that. So it meant that because China had this zero COVID policy, where basically they didn't want to vaccinate everybody for, for various political reasons, I'm not going into that, so while the rest of the world was getting vaccinated and locking down, etc., China was pretty much open. And China's movie industry has just been growing and growing and growing over the last 25, 30 years. So it meant that for most of 2021, the single biggest grossing movie across planet Earth, grossing just shy of a billion dollars, was the Chinese film The Battle at Lake Changjin. Now, it was actually pipped at the post right at the end of the year when Spider-Man No Way Home came out and that grossed just shy of $2 billion. So normal surfaces resumed. Oh, look, there's an American superhero movie raking in the dough. But the fact of the matter was that the battle at Lake Chongjin was a monster, monster hit in China. 
And I guess the Chinese producers figured this would be a big hit because they filmed back-to-back that and a sequel, which is known in English generally as the Battle of Lake Chongjin 2, although actually its technical English language name is the Watergate Bridge. Because funnily enough, the first movie is about an area of a lake called Chongjin, if you're in Korea or China, or Chosin, if you're Western, basically. So if you've ever heard the Battle of Chosin in the Korean War, that's what it's portraying from the other side. However, in the second movie, it makes no sense calling it the Battle of Lake Chongjin 2 because it's all about a bridge. So the other name is much more appropriate. But hey, let's do brand recognition, shall we? It's like with Final Fantasy video games, okay? Literally, we're on Final Fantasy 16 now. That is 16 finals of a fantasy. Anyway, that's what was happening in 2021. And it was a monster hit. And I sort of want to do a bit of a comparison because this thing was such a monster. It's nearly three hours long. It got all the box office in China. It might well be. It is kind of hard to work these things out. And you obviously taking into inflation makes it even more complicated. It is basically the biggest grossing Chinese movie of all time. But there are some caveats to that. If somebody who really knows their Chinese movies wants to say, uh, well, actually, then okay, fine, please correct me if I'm wrong. But you get the idea. This thing was a monster. And also, it had not one, not two, but six directors. That's usually not the sign of a good film. But the point of The Battle of Lake Chongqing is... It's basically a Chinese propaganda piece. This film I'm going to be comparing to an American film that came out in 2022 called Devotion, which is also set during the Korean War. But you probably haven't heard of Devotion, but I'm telling you right now, for the record, if you want to make Chinese government a little bit richer, you can rent The Battle of Lake Chongjin on Amazon Prime right now for a few pounds, few dollars. I might well be selling you out of that concept, but Devotion you can see for free right now on Amazon Prime. So, Devotion, what's that, I hear you say? So, Devotion is the true story. As I said, the Battle of Lake Changjin was a genuine battle, but all of the characters in it are completely made up, and pretty much, apart from the fact that the Korean War's a thing, everything else is made up. Whereas, as you're probably aware... When it comes to Hollywood, if they're doing a, a true story on about a true individual, of course they're going to play fast and loose with some information, but they will generally, there are exceptions to this, stick to the fact that there was this person, they went this pl- to this place, they did this thing, and let's try and get the outfits right or era appropriate, shall we? So it's the true story of Ensign Jesse Brown, who was the first African-American U.S. Navy fighter pilot to fly off and on aircraft carriers. So, really interesting story, pretty much an unknown story. I'd certainly never heard of Jesse Brown until the movie Devotion was coming out. The background of this, I was, I'm always interested in, in historical movies, but this particular one caught my eye for something I was doing on another project, but I just couldn't get to see it in time. It was coming out basically at the wrong time, and basically nobody went to see it anyway, so yeah. Production budget was about $90 million. It didn't even gross $25 million at the global box office. So in many ways, while it's about the same war, 
it is the complete opposite of the Battle of Lake Chongjin, which was a license to print money, and indeed, in 2022, when the Battle of Lake Chongjin sequel came out, didn't make as much money, but it was still a huge, huge hit. There was still a great appetite, obviously mainly in China, to see this movie and to see the glories of the Chinese Communist Army fighting in the Korean War. The thing about Devotion is, in many ways, as I say, it gets it right. For example, they fly Corsairs and they also fly Hellcats. These are propeller aircraft. At the time, the interesting thing about the Korean War is obviously, if you kind of know your bits about World War II, you are aware that by the end of World War II, there were jet aircraft flying amongst all these propeller aircraft, largely German, but there were a few Allied craft right at the end of World War II that were jet aircraft. However, by Korea, we've got the MiGs coming in, the, the Soviet first jet fighters, but also you've got still things like Corsairs and Hellcats, which were extremely powerful. They, they were some of the most extremely powerful propeller-driven aircraft of World War II, but by 1950, they are, in essence, obsolete. They're very good, but when they're up against jets, it gets difficult, okay, at that point. And indeed, you see a dogfight with a MiG, and this was a true thing. This happened. And I'm not saying that the propeller aircraft were guaranteed to lose, but, you know, the skill of the pilots is still really important. But basically, by the end of the Korean War, everybody had, in essence, agreed that jets are the future, and particularly fighter planes, were no longer propeller aircraft after the Korean War, which finished in 1953, for the record. Moving on, what I wanted to say with Devotion is they get the airplanes right. I am going to... So it's the film itself is directed by J.D. Dillard, who is an African-American filmmaker, and this is clearly the biggest thing that he'd worked on. And as I said earlier in my intros, like this is a part of a new bit of Hollywood where we're getting... African-American history told by African-American screenwriters. Now, this had been around for a while. You get in 2014, for example, the movie Selma, which is, if you don't believe me, check this. This is the first big-budget Hollywood movie about Martin Luther King. It took him to 2014 to start making movies like that. Then we get Black Panther, which obviously isn't historical, but it's a black superhero and it's one of the first non-Avenger movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to gross over a billion dollars worldwide, and indeed grossed over 700 million in the domestic American market. Black filmmaking in the past was seen as niche, was seen as nobody's going to necessarily go and see it apart from local black communities, which tend to be poor in America. Hollywood was less interested, but now we're starting to see them winning Oscars and doing big box office. And so we get the likes of everything from Jordan Peele's Get Out, which, you know, kickstarts his directorial career, to other incredibly worthy films like Judas and the Black Messiah, Detroit, One Night in Miami. The list goes on and on, you know, hidden figures, you know, about black women in the NASA moon program. Bet you didn't even know that they even existed. So it was a chance to sort of right some wrongs on this. And Devotion was a chance to say, hey, you know, the realities were in World War II. Hardly any combat troops were actually African-American because of basically American 
racial politics. Most of the people of color who fought in World War II, actually, you know, fought, were bizarrely usually British subjects or French subjects. You know, they were Moroccan, they were West Indian, they were Indian, literally. So if you're Hollywood and you're trying to show brave African-American men fighting in a war, Korea is probably one of the first place to go to. And you know what? Jesse Brown's a great story to do because we're showing that to be the sort of pilot that can land on an aircraft carrier, and this is one of the things the film does really, really well, they show you how difficult it is to land on an aircraft carrier. Let's face it, the landing platform is moving and also is swaying a bit as well. Plus, you've got the wind shear because you're out in the ocean, which is worse than if you were at a sort of landing strip on normal land, etc. So it does a great job of showing there is skill involved. This is not just bravery or brute strength. So Jesse Brown is the complete package. He is a patriot. He is brave. He is strong, but he's also smart and he is skilled. And so you get all these things together and it makes a good film. I am not going to oversell Devotion. The problem with it is you've probably seen all of it before done better in other movies, but you haven't seen it done over the peninsula of Korea, okay? Now, one of the things I want to say where they deliberately get the history wrong but plays well to America is there is a scene where, minor spoilers for devotion, I don't think anybody's going to scream at me for this. Oh yeah, I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of the Korean War too, so (laughs) spoilers for history that's 70 years old. Anyway, for real, this did happen for real, Jesse Brown, while on leave in Marseille in France, uh, they go to Europe first of all before they go to Korea, meets Elizabeth Taylor, you know, the mega star of the time of the era of 1950 he meets her and she invites him to a casino this genuinely happened by the way but when jesse turns up with all of his flying mates and says hey you know i'm gonna get you to meet elizabeth taylor they're met with a snooty racist doorman at this casino in france and in essence says we don't want your sort in here now I did my due diligence on this because I could smell some anachronisms and indeed that never happened. And this is where it gets a bit tricky. I know I'm a white guy talking about this and I will hopefully get my get out of jail card in a moment. The point is this. In 1950 in America, there were the Jim Crow laws that absolutely led to segregation in America. Putting it simply, you could be as rich or as brave or as high ranking an African-American you could be. But if you went to the wrong hotel, you simply weren't allowed in by law. Doesn't matter if you've got a million dollars to give that hotel, they're not allowed to say yes to you. That was in some parts of America. But the Jim Crow laws didn't even apply to all of America, let alone France. So, no, this scene never happened. And and this is something that a lot of Americans don't understand about Europe in the sense that, and this is why I'm trying to get my get-out-of-jail-free card, Every country has racism. Every country has their own flavor of what they don't like about other people. It may not even be people of color. For example, people can be fairly racist in India about white people, for example. So it's complicated, it's difficult. I am not saying that racism isn't alive and well in France. Of course it is. But in terms of actual segregation in hotels, that's not a thing in France. An example was a lot of the African-American men who did fight in the trenches of World War I, particularly from Harlem, 
a lot of them actually stayed in France after the war because actually the white French people, and we're talking about French people here, uh, were nicer to them than the white American people and the laws of the land. And this is why France in the 1920s had such a thriving jazz scene, because some of those great jazz players were in France rather than in Harlem nowadays moving forward. So anyway, yeah. That's a piece where devotion is trying to have its cake and eat it too, and actually being as historically inaccurate as something like the battle at Lake Chongjin. Pulling all these things together and trying to explain the Korean War a little bit more with these movies, let's talk about one of the earliest, best-known films about the Korean War, which, even though it is set in Korea, is actually an analogy for another war. Yeah, it gets complicated, doesn't it? Let's talk about... The year is 1970, and two books come out that are turned into films. The first one is called Catch-22. This was a monster hit in the late 1960s that led to a scramble in Hollywood to turn it into a movie. And you might have even heard the phrase Catch-22, the basic idea being that the only way you can leave the army is by being insane, but if you ask to leave the army because you're insane... Only insane people would want to stay in the army, so that's not a reason to leave. It's, you know, it's it's basically a, a, a circular logic, basically, going on there. So basically, it's an anti-war war film slash book about bombers in World War II. Came out in 1970, and this was meant to be the big anti-war film of 1970. Again, it's set in World War II, But what was really going on in 1970, and indeed when the book was actually written in the late 60s, Vietnam. So whereas most people in America would have described World War II as, in inverted commas, the good war, where we, you know, obviously the Nazis are the bad guys, clearly there were some concerns about Vietnam. It's like, well, are we now the bad guys? You know, bombing Vietnam back to the Stone Age, literal phrase used by one of the Air Force generals. So... That's what it was all about. Thing is, book was huge hit, but film just didn't work. And so it basically flopped, and all the Oscars it was meant to win never happened. Instead, there was a much more low-budget, very dark comedy about the Korean War, you know, the Forgotten War, called MASH, that came out to huge box office and huge adulation, and it even won an Oscar as well. And even though it was about the Korean War, it was, you know, just incredibly anachronistic. We got, in essence, proto-hippies and their doctors, you know. So if this had been a movie about bombers, you know, bombers is what was happening in Vietnam. And, or if they'd been infantrymen, again, that's what's happening in Vietnam. But now with surgeons, you know, if we've got the counterculture, it's going to be saving lives. And... Not all of MASH has aged well. The casual misogyny does not play well to the modern people. And therefore, you know, there is elements to these guys where it's like, you're not as cool as you think you are, actually. But it sent a shockwave through American culture back in 1970. So much so that it ended up being turned into a far less edgy kind of comedy drama TV series, again called MASH, where interestingly, the theme tune called Suicide is Painless, where you get the tune... And people singing it in the movie, in the TV show, it's just the instrumental version, so you don't have the word suicide on at like eight o'clock in the evening in, you know, the family home. The game of life is hard to play. I'm gonna lose it anyway. The 
card on Sunday Lane So this is all I have to say Like I say, all the sharp edges were taken off it as a TV show. It was still war is hell, but the irony is the Korean War lasted three years, give or take. The TV show of M.A.S.H. started in 1972 and ran till 1983. So, you know, by season eight, when they're going, when is this war ever going to end? The answer is, it did. Five years ago. You can go home now. So, yeah, so M.A.S.H. was, if you like, the only brand associated with the Korean War, which is, you know, interesting. And basically, anything to do with Korea quite often doesn't do well at the box office. And sadly, devotion has proven this. Now, why? I did say I would mention one Korean War. So... In roundabout 2000, there's this movie which in English is called Brotherhood, which is basically somebody in Korea watched Saving Private Ryan went, I can do that. I can base that around the Korean War too. So on the one hand, all the battle scenes are as visceral and as terrifying as Saving Private Ryan. It is a very good watch, but the drama is very mawkish. It is melodrama stacked on top of stoicism, stacked on top of crying quietly into your sleeve all the way through. The action scenes are the best bits of it, and basically it's about these two brothers who get separated, and and basically they end up fighting on different sides of the Korean War with lots of tears and stoicism ensuing. It's a cracking couple of hours. I would take it with a bag of salt. But yeah, there you go. There is an actual Korean War film about the Korean War, but it's kind of been culturally appropriated by other people. So what I wanted to sort of like put out here is... Okay, first of all, why is the Korean War largely forgotten? And the answer is because it's only five years after World War II. So even the people fighting in it were well aware that something much bigger had happened earlier on. And the other thing is, at the end, there was basically a ceasefire, which technically is still in place. The Korean War technically still hasn't finished, but the shooting stopped in 1953. It is the most militarized border in the world between North and South Korea. More on that later on. So basically, neither side won. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And therefore, it's a kind of unsatisfying story to tell from either perspective because it's not mission accomplished either way, whether you're a communist or whether you're in South Korea. So that's the problem. So if you want sort of heroism, you're going to go to World War Two. Or if you're going to do war is hell and you're American, well, it's even grittier if we do it in Vietnam. So it just it falls between the two areas of why you might want to make a war film. That's problem number one. So then we come to problem number two, and this is where I am going to start hammering the battle at Lake Chungjin. You see, as I pointed out with devotion, it shows you sort of racial tensions in the U.S. Navy and in American culture. In other words, if you knew nothing about America and watched the movie Devotion, you would realize that America has a flawed society. What I do like about it is it's not one of these films where all the black people are amazing and all the white people are kind of terrible. You know, at the center of this all, there is this really powerful relationship that is a true story between Jesse Brown and his lieutenant, Tom Hudner, who is a white guy played by Glenn Powell. More on him in a moment. But the thing about it is that it just shows you, you know, America is flawed. You do see people failing in the army and in the naval air force, etc. in this film. It is not just everybody acting wonderfully at all time. So it does show you, because we live in a democracy where there is free speech, it does show you that things aren't perfect. Flip that to the battle at Lake Changjin, which is made by six film directors, basically on the orders of the Chinese Communist Party. They're not going to show anything wrong. Now, it is a fact that the Americans during the Korean War created a new type of anti-personnel mine called a Claymore. This is something that still exists today. Mines aren't great for anybody. I'm not, I'm not sort of turning around and trying about to try and sell you some landmines here. Indeed, they're banned under sort of like various different conventions under certain circumstances. Doesn't mean they're still sadly not used in the world. And of course, once they're in the ground, does everybody know to pick all of them up again? So they're terrible things. But basically, you dig them into the ground and then you step on them and then they blow up, basically. And most anti-personnel mines are not designed to kill. They're designed to maim because that means that you now have a screaming soldier and other soldiers feel obliged to carry them off the field and therefore you've got more targets to hit as they sling their rifles and try and drag the person away. Just, the whole thing's just horrible, okay? But what a claymore is, it's different. It doesn't get dug into the ground. Instead, it famously says, it's got a, it basically it's a curved rectangle and it, it says on it, front towards enemy. So basically, the curve outwards you stick towards where the enemy are coming and basically in it, it has an explosive charge and a large amount of metal ball bearings and it's basically like a one-shot wide radius shotgun this was like 
great shot in cannons back in the time of like the Napoleonic era, where basically you got, in essence, a tin full of metal balls fired at out the cannon, and you turned your cannon into a massive shotgun with all the with all the projectiles flying off in different directions. Same basic idea with a claymore, and it was designed to break up the Chinese tactic of the human waves. They would literally throw one wave of, of Chinese soldiers at them, another wave, and another wave, and sometimes the first wave didn't even have rifles. Or you were in perhaps the third wave, and you didn't have a rifle because you were going to have to pick it off the body of one of your dead comrades who's just been sent towards the enemy. This is terrible and wasteful, but when you have a country like China with such a large population, you can afford to lose a million people. Mao even said this, I lose a million, you lose a million, I win. And that's the thing. So, you know, you use what you've got to your advantage. It is terrible. It is yet another condemnation of the utterly morally bankrupt system that Mao Zedong created, okay? Do you see that in the film? No. No, you don't. Indeed, the film is everything you'd probably expect from communist Chinese propaganda, in the sense that, you know, the Chinese are brave. And look, there were absolutely there were brave Chinese in the Korean War, but the Chinese are brave, and their bravery and their love of the motherland will keep them going, and they will fight through the hardest conditions, and they're properly equipped, but it's really tough, and, you know, they... There is a scene where an American bomber goes to attack a train where basically all of our heroes and all their units are on and also their equipment, which again seems extremely well equipped for, you know, what we actually know about the Korean War. This bomber takes three or four minutes to get into position and do its run. The bomber crew are the singularly worst bomber crew. This was referred to in World War II as rhubarb raids. You know, you're flying along with your typhoon in the RAF and you get these sort of targets of opportunity and you get into position and you rake it with gunfire, you fire off a few rockets and you definitely disrupted things. These people clearly had never heard of that because they get into, oh, it just takes forever. But of course it's there to build the tension and everybody's got enough time to get off the train and everybody's got enough time to get lots of kit off the train as well. It would never have happened in real life. I get that it's there for dramatic purposes, but again, you know, there is no criticism whatsoever. Nobody does anything stupid. Nobody makes a mistake. Everybody is brave at all times and stoic at all times, and that isn't what happens in a war. So like I say, Devotion, again, if you're an alien and you saw these two movies, Devotion and the Battle of Lake Chungjin, at the same time to understand the Korean War, you would A, think the Chinese were the good guys, and B, literally, there is the same basic scene in these two movies shown from the two different perspectives. Basically, the first combat thing that you see Jesse Brown doing in the movie is there's an attack on a bridge, and he's flying his Corsair, and you indeed see Corsairs attacking a bridge in the Battle of Lake Changjin. Only in that situation, the Corsairs are evil and terrible and awful and cowardly for like being up in the air. Whereas in the devotion, you know, the Chinese are sort of like barely shown and they're sort of like terrible shots with their anti-aircraft guns. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. It can't be the, it's like they can't possibly be portrayed in these two different ways more so. So anyway, Battle Lake Changjin has very impressive battle sequences and nothing else. What's interesting is, and somebody on YouTube, if you don't believe me, it's all been spliced together all of the English language stuff. So anything to do with the Americans, somebody spliced together on YouTube, 
And the way they talk is exactly the way you get subtitles. So I can't speak Mandarin to Chinese. And I know that the conversation between these two people is being summarized, not word for word, is not verbatim underneath them in the subtitles. But unfortunately, clearly the Mandarin screenwriters just put it into Google Translate, gave it to the to the American actors to read their lines. <laughs> they barely make sense. They really, it, it's terrible. But again, you don't need it. The point is, they're the enemy. And, and the other thing is, this is the Korean War. This is, in theory, a civil war between the North and South, between Communist North and not Communist South. They weren't democracy in, in the 1950s, for the record. They had a pretty brutal dictatorship of themselves. It's just they weren't communist. But anyway, we'll come on to a little bit more of the history in a moment. But the point is that in Battle of Lake Changjin, the Americans are evil because what right do they have to be in Korea? And, you know, they're sort of arrogant and aggressive and, you know, they're causing all this death and destruction. Which, if for a moment, it's like, okay, well, what right does China have to be in Korea then, causing all this death and destruction and sending in their army and stuff like that? They're both invading forces, both backing their side in a civil war. If it's wrong for one side, it's wrong for both sides. And if it's fine for one side, it's fine for both sides. But don't try and pick and mix your morality halfway through an argument. That doesn't work logically, but it absolutely works for a propaganda film. Okay, so... Let's get into a little bit about, you know, what actually happened in the Korean War. And as I've said, why, why it's forgotten. But like I said, you already know the answer to this. But what's interesting is that there was this spread in the first half of the 20th century of communism. We all know about the communist revolution in the Russian Revolution, basically overlapping with World War I, which spread across the whole of the Russian Empire, which meant that places that technically weren't part of Russia, but wanted to be their own thing, like... Ukraine, you've all heard about that one, but also lesser-known places like Siberia and Mongolia, which absolutely have their own cultural identity. They also were trying to rebel against the communists, and there was a huge war which absorbed it all back again into a new Russian empire, which you can't call it that, and ended up being called the Soviet Union. So then you've got World War II, and at the end of World War II, the Soviet Union gobbles up most of Eastern Europe into satellite states, places like Poland. Poland had just the worst century of the 20th century. You know, it didn't exist in 1900. It finally gets its independence in 1918. Then it gets attacked immediately by the Soviet Union, has to fight for its life and wins, but then gets absorbed again, both into the Soviet Union and the Third Reich in 1939. Oh my goodness. And then finally, when it becomes free again in 1945, it's basically sort of uh, enforced to be part of the Eastern Bloc. So you get this spread of communism again, this sort of second wave at the end of World War II. Then you've got the whole of China falling to communism, you know, the most populous country in the world in 1949. And then you've got the spread of communism going on in Korea as well. And so basically Korea was split on the 38th parallel, you know, in terms of latitude and longitude on, on planet Earth. It's just a straight line. Korea had always been one country on its own. Korea is very different to its big neighbours, Japan and China. For example, those two countries have a character system in terms of their writing. Korea has an alphabet. It's just a very different alphabet to, like, the Western Latin one. But already you can see that's fundamentally a very different way of doing things. Korea is fiercely independent, fiercely proud, and absolutely doesn't want any country marching through its peninsula. Thank you very much. What happens is, in 19, late 1950, 
the North Koreans under the Kim dynasty, which still is their grandson is still running North Korea. Basically, they invade the South and they immediately get to Seoul, which is only just on the other side of the border. Seoul is within artillery range of North Korea, which is why it's all very tense on the Korean Peninsula. And they manage to push all the way down the peninsula. So we then get General MacArthur, one of the heroes of World War II. He starts forming together an army. And this is the really weird bit that I'm going to blow your mind about, because the Korean War is the only war ever declared by the UN. And the reason why no other war is being declared by the UN is there is this thing called the Security Council, which has very different countries on it. There's the permanent members, places like America and modern-day Russia, and you've got sort of like rotating members as well, it's countries with smaller military powers and economic powers. You know, they're there for a time and then they rotate off again. But you've got Britain and France and China and Russia as well, and America, obviously. So you've got all these people together as a balance. Now, this is the one time, or China at that time was not on the UN Security Council, but also Russia, or the Soviet Union, I should say, was basically having a sulk. They weren't going on. So that meant that the only members of the Security Council were, in essence, Western powers, and therefore there was no veto. They could actually declare war and nobody could stop them. And therefore, that's why the UN, it is not America going to war for Korea. It is the United Nations. That's why there were Canadians there, Brits there, Turks there. People from all over the world ended up fighting in Korea, which sounds a bit odd, but that, that's absolutely true. And what happened was MacArthur came up with his brilliant plan saying, look, they've swept all the way through the peninsula. So if all we do is just go to the bottom of the peninsula and try and fight our way back up. That's never going to happen. It's, 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 it'll take too long. Too many people will die. So instead, what we're going to do is a very daring raid on Incheon, a port about halfway up the western coast of the peninsula. His theory being, if we take Incheon and can start putting in forces in Incheon, it will force everybody south to move up north again. And that's exactly what he did. It was incredibly difficult military operation. And credit to MacArthur, you know, it was daring. It worked. And also the overall strategy worked as well because it forced the North Koreans to move up north. And so what happened was the North Koreans swept all the way south of the peninsula. And then the Allied forces swept all the way north of the peninsula. But as they got closer and closer to the Chinese border, China was worried that the UN wouldn't stop and break into you know, the only the year old communist China. And so Mao just basically started sending in literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops coming over the border and getting involved and starting to fight. And indeed, the Soviet Union had pilots in those MiGs that I mentioned. So you basically had the communist world fighting the, the West in inverted commas, and it became very, very tense. Indeed, the point at which MacArthur lost the plot, because this is kind of the Korean War was both his highest point of impressiveness and also the collapse of his support is basically he threatened to nuke China, saying, you know, there's no better time than now. Russia has only just got the bomb. They don't have enough of them. Basically, we got all but two nuclear weapons in the whole world, so let's do that. We could nuke China into submission and we could get rid of the communists. That was a little strong for Harry Truman. He basically said, nope, that's not happening. And the rest, as they say, is history. So MacArthur got kicked out. But what happened was, while yes, they did get very far north, and the winters in Korea are bitterly cold, and you do see this both in Devotion and the Battle at Lake Changjin, and indeed the, the second movie of that, of that series. And what basically happened was the 
Allied forces were freezing to death up near the Chinese border. The Chinese sweep in, just sheer weight of numbers forced them down, and pretty much the rest of the war is fought roughly around the 38th parallel. So in the end, it's like, okay, fine. That line we had at the beginning of all this, that's the line where we're ending this now as well. You stay on your side, we'll stay on our side, and, you know, we'll still be sitting there glaring at each other 70 years later, which is kind of depressing. But that that's basically a summary of what happened in the Korean War. But I want to end on an unusual moment in the Korean War. And to my American listeners, I will pause so you can have a think about this. So what happened was, this is an example where you got all these multinational organizations working with each other, these different armies working with each other, and it doesn't always work out. So what happened was the Gloucester Regiment was being attacked. So these are British soldiers being attacked by the Chinese. And they radio in to the headquarters, which was America, and they say, the situation is getting a bit sticky. Now, if you're American, you don't really deal with many British people. I'd like you to pause this podcast and think, what on earth does that even mean? Okay. Now, you can probably guess, okay, it's not good. But the question then is, well, if the situation is getting a bit sticky, how bad is it? And basically, if you're British, you already know the answer to this. So basically what happened was the Americans clearly had a bit of a conversation and in essence went, OK, clearly the fighting is hard, but they're doing OK. Whereas if you're British, you know that if the British army is saying the situation's getting a bit sticky, this is our classic stiff upper lip. And if you want to translate it, situation critical, come and help us now. And by the time the Americans realized that they had made that mistake, the Gloucester Regiment had basically been surrounded by Chinese forces and was all but out of ammunition. Indeed, and I'm not making this up, the, the British were reduced to throwing tins of cheese at the enemy, presumably shouting bang at the same time, because that's not really going to do anything. So here comes the unfunny bit. The Americans, realizing their mistake, sent in an armored division to not only shoot at the Chinese infantry that basically had no anti-tank weapons, but to literally run over Chinese infantry so that the British forces could jump onto the back of those tanks. And most of them, not all of them, got out. Some of them were captured. So that's a true story from the Korean War. And indeed, this happened in what is now modern day South Korea. And to this day, the hill where they were fighting on is actually known as Gloucester Hill, which is kind of a nice sort of recognition to the, the, the forces that helped to keep at least part of Korea free of communism. So there we go. A number of different films. So back to Devotion. I can think of worse ways to spend two hours. It is a good film. It is a solid film. It is not a great film. And both films kind of suffer from CGI. I mean, there's only so many ways you can deal with, like, a MiG in the sky or, indeed, you know, all the anti-aircraft gunfire. Devotion's got better CGI than the battle at Lake Chungjin. But the problem is this. It is kind of a slightly old-fashioned way of making a movie because I want to go back to, I want to finish with Glenn Powell, who plays Tom Hudner, his sort of, like, the white lieutenant who's basically the partner with Jesse Brown. So, to be clear, Glenn Powell is the actor. This is a film about him being a pilot, and it came out in 2022. Thing is, Glenn Powell was also a pilot in basically the second biggest movie of 2022, Top Gun Maverick, where they were genuinely in aircraft, genuinely being thrown around. So, while Glenn Powell actually has more of a meaty role in this film, there's no doubt that the better aerial dogfight, and indeed Glenn Powell in an aircraft is better in Top Gun Maverick. So 
it's like I, I absolutely get and they did actually get six real Corsairs to fly and anytime you see the Corsairs sort of flying low to the ground and stuff like that with like cameras literally on them it looks great the problem always comes as soon as there's a crash or a dogfight or they have to hit a target in North Korea or something like that with anti-aircraft fire going off everywhere at that point it starts looking well a bit CGI a bit gamey and it's like you now see why Tom Cruise said no we're going to do almost all of this practically because you can't beat in-camera stuff and he's absolutely right and that's why Top Gun Maverick made nearly 1.5 billion at the box office and is one of the reasons why Devotion couldn't even get to 25 million so like I say it's it's not the greatest film ever it's definitely worth watching you know like I say I could think of a worse way to spend two hours of your life but please don't turn around and say Jem you told me that was essential and it isn't because it isn't an essential movie the last thing I will say, actually, so Jonathan Majors plays Jesse Brown, and, and he's good in the role. I mean, it's a little bit stoic, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do with somebody who's the brave hero, you know, you could do with a few more flaws, but you can understand why they're not going to necessarily put them into the film. But he's also playing Kang in this Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've already seen him once as a good Kang in Loki, but he's about to be a bad Kang in Ant-Man, multiverse of weirdness, quantum mania, blah de blah Also, he's the, the main bad guy in Creed 3, and he is big in that film. So also over Christmas, he was a spokesperson for Johnny Walker. So Jonathan Majors is having quite the moment in 22 and 23 and and good on him he is a great actor it's not the only stuff i've seen him in but he's got a lot of stuff coming out at the moment and yeah just keep your eye out for him i'm no doubt at some point he's going to be oscar nominated for something anyway that's it as always love to get your thoughts on this have i convinced you to watch any of these films let me know on at gem on twitter please share this please give us a review online if you can or subscribe if you haven't subscribed i don't know why you'd specifically hunt out a korean war episode and that's the first one you've ever listened to but if you have hello welcome i've got lots of other episodes please listen to them and yes another episode coming soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Ando. And I'm Fer. And we host Niña Bien Podcasts. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means good girls in Spanish. But you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls. Or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast. So everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chidme Ajeno too. 
a section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos, vamos a ser tus nuevas amigas. amigas. We'll be your friends for the non-Spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by Acast and available to all audio platforms. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com